Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to Deaf to Me, a song by CU Starside. This group, out of the Queen City, Cincinnati, Ohio, is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So stick around to the end of the podcast. We will tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song. And now it's time to throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always, is our award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories to the Acker Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. On March the 8th, 1782, in the midst of the American Revolution, a militia force of this young country marched into the peaceful village of Janadenhutton in present-day Tuscaroras County and executed 96 pacifist Indians. Two by two, they led every man, woman, and child to a slaughterhouse and cleaved their heads with an axe before scalping them. It is surely a mystery of human behavior, especially since the Indians had taken vows of peace. The Indians they killed had been converted to Christianity a decade earlier, had adopted English names, and had accepted the teachings of Moravian missionaries to forsake violence and war. Modern historians and others who study the event are still stunned by the viciousness of it. As President Teddy Roosevelt said a century after it happened, the mass murder was a stain that the lapse of time cannot wash away. This isn't an easy story to hear, so be forewarned, I won't be any more graphic than necessary, but it is a heartbreaking atrocity. This is the story of the Janaden Hutton Massacre. The indigenous people in our story are the Lenape Indians, also known as the Delaware. That's because they used to live along the Delaware River in New Jersey. But over the years, as Britain expanded its American colonies along the East Coast, the Delaware were pushed west. They first migrated into Pennsylvania, then, by the late 1700s, into the Ohio country. 
And that's where they were in 1772 when missionaries came to convert them to Christianity. The missionaries were led by David Zeisberger, an immigrant from the Eastern European country of Moravia, which today is part of the Czech Republic. Moravians were actually the first large-scale Protestant missionary movement in the world. Zeisberger had been converting North American Indians for decades. He had lived with the Delaware when they were still in Pennsylvania, and when they were pressured to move west again, he went with them. The first mission he established in the Ohio country was Schoenbrunn, which means beautiful spring in German. It was located near modern-day New Philadelphia in Tuscarawas County. His followers lived like white settlers. They farmed and became craftsmen. The children attended school. Everyone participated in church. The Moravians required the Delaware to abandon many of their traditions. They weren't allowed to paint their faces. They couldn't take more than one wife. They had to adopt Christian names and they had to vow to be nonviolent. The mission was such a success. Zeisberg founded two more of them nearby, the village of Janadenhutten, which means tents of life, and another he called Salem. Now, the American Revolution was still four years away when he had established them. But when that war broke out, the Delaware found themselves in a precarious position, During the war, the American rebels took over Fort Pitt in Pennsylvania. The British had a firm hold on Fort Detroit in Michigan. The Ohio country in between was a no-man's land that trapped the Delaware between the opposing forces. It's hard to be neutral in wartime. The Americans and the British were both seeking Indian allies. In Schoenbrunn, Janadenhutten, and Salem, the Delaware pacifists refused to take sides. And for the time being, the British and the Americans recognized that neutrality. But their fellow tribesmen who hadn't been converted had to make a choice. Some took up arms for the British. Those Delaware moved to northwest Ohio to be closer to the protection of Fort Detroit, They settled on the Scioto and Sandusky Rivers. Other Delaware aligned themselves with the Americans and remained in the eastern half of the state, mostly around their main settlement of Coshocton. But the Delaware alliance with the Americans was a short one, and it had a bitter ending. Chief White Eyes had signed a treaty with the Americans that promised to make Ohio an all-Indian state within the new country. But when White Eyes died in 1778, the U.S. Congress chose not to ratify the treaty. To make matters worse, there were people, both white and Indian, who believed White Eyes had been murdered by America's militia. And so the Delawares, who had supported America, changed their support to Britain. America responded to this by destroying their capital in Coshocton. Colonel Daniel Broadhead led his men out of Fort Pitt in April of 1781. They leveled the village, and the Delaware who survived it fled to the northwest. 
Now, during this time, those peaceful Delaware Christians were still in Tuscarawas County. Broadhead's militia wanted to take them out, too. Broadhead worked hard to hold them at bay, insisting those Indians were not a problem. He had his work cut out for him. Raiding Indians had been carrying out terrible and gruesome attacks on white settlers near the Ohio River, and most settlers and militiamen just didn't see the difference between friendly and hostile tribes. An Indian was an Indian. Well, Broadhead won his argument for the moment, and he and his soldiers returned to Fort Pitt. Actually, the first side to take action against the Delaware Christians were the British, though their effort was a nonviolent one. In September of 1781, this was about five months after Broadhead's American militia burned down Coshocton, the British arrested David Zeisberger and his assistant John Heckwelder. They took the two Moravian mission leaders to Fort Detroit to try them on charges of treason and accuse them of providing military intelligence to the Americans at Fort Pitt. Meanwhile, the Brits had their Indian allies go to Zeisberger's villages of Schoenbrunn, Janadenhutten, and Salem and forcibly move the residents out. About 300 warriors showed up in Tuscarawas County and pressured the Delaware Christians into packing up, abandoning their homes and their farm fields that were flush with corn, and marching to the northwest. They took them to the land that was along the Sandusky River, in an area mostly inhabited by Wyandots. They called that new settlement in Upper Sandusky, Captive Town. Now, things went well for Zeisberger and Heckwelder. A trial was held, and they were both acquitted and released. But things were very dire for their followers, who were now living in Captive Town. No provisions had been made for them. They were left to fend for themselves. There were hundreds of them. Since they had been forced to relocate in October, it was too late for them to plant crops to feed themselves. They did what they could to build huts and houses for the winter and scrounged for supplies. But when winter hit, they were starving. By February of 1782, it was agreed to allow some of them to return to their old villages to harvest the fields of corn they had been forced to leave and collect any food that they had stored or supplies they had left behind. More than 150 Delaware made this trip. Many of them were part of family units who wanted to stay together. So a full third of the expedition were children. The Delaware divided themselves between the three missions of Schoenbrunn, Janadenhutten, and Salem and got to work. The first week of March, they were almost done harvesting the corn and probably just a couple of days from beginning their return trip to Northwest Ohio. But that's also when their killers started assembling. 
on March the 4th, 1782, a party of militiamen from Washington County, Pennsylvania, led by Lieutenant Colonel David Williams, began marching toward the Tuscaroras Valley, and the soldiers were bent on revenge. Just a couple of weeks earlier, an Indian war party had attacked the Pennsylvania homestead of the Robert Wallace family, then fled back into Ohio. After crossing the Ohio River, the raiders impaled a woman and a child on stakes and left them for all to see. And so about 160 men gathered in western Pennsylvania and formally mustered into a militia force at Mingo Bottom on the Ohio River, just below present-day Steubenville. Back at Fort Pitt, an American colonel, John Gibson, learned that the militia intended to march on the Moravian missions. He even dispatched a messenger to warn the Indians to flee. The messenger would arrive too late. The Delaware Christians did have some advance warning, however. You see, the Indians who had actually attacked those settlers in Pennsylvania passed by Janaid and Hutton on their return trip, and they had told the villagers what they had done and suggested they should make themselves scarce or risk being blamed. The peaceful Indians did not heed the warning, confident that their faith and adherence to pacifism and neutrality would save them. On March the 6th, the vanguard of the militia, about 16 men, encountered their first victim, Joseph Shabash Jr., the son of a Welshman and his Delaware wife, was out searching for a horse when they came across him. He pleaded for his life. They beat him with an axe. The soldiers found Joseph's wife hiding at the river's edge and killed her too. Joseph's brother, Jacob, was nearby and witnessed the brutal executions. He fled without being seen. That same day, that small vanguard reached Janaden Hutton, where they found the Delaware at work in the cornfields, bundling the last of their harvest. Since those soldiers were far outnumbered at first, they acted friendly. The villagers fed them. When the entire militia force arrived, the villagers were told they would be escorted to Fort Pitt, where they would be safe from frontier violence. The villagers loaded up their belongings on pack horses and prepared to move out. The soldiers also asked them to hand over any weapons they had that keep them for the journey. The Indians turned in the guns they used for hunting, as well as their pocket knives and hatchets. Now a separate group of militiamen went to the mission in Salem, and with the help of a villager that they had brought from Janadenhutton, explained the plan to help them relocate. And so the villagers from Salem traveled with them to Janadenhutton so they could all leave for Fort Pitt together. It was when both of those villages had been merged into one that the American soldiers made known their intent. They accused the Indians of those raids in Pennsylvania. They held a single mob trial that was over in minutes. They pointed out some of the property the Indians had, 
horses, farm implements, cooking utensils, and insisted they had been stolen from white people. The Delaware responded that if they indeed had items that had been stolen during that raid, they must have acquired them in trades. But their explanations and pleas of innocence fell on deaf ears. Colonel Williamson told his men the fate of the Indians was up to them. Many of his men had lost someone in a frontier raid and were eager for payback. Williamson lined up his men and said those who voted for mercy should take a step forward. Eighteen men took that step. Well over a hundred men remained motionless, their inaction a vote for execution. The villagers were divided into two buildings, one for men, one for women and children. They were given the evening to prepare for death. The Indians prayed to God and sang hymns throughout the night. The soldiers, meanwhile, were getting fully worked up for the job ahead. They got drunk, partly on communion wine they'd found in the church. They debated on how to kill their captives, torn between burning them alive or splitting their heads with an axe. The next morning, on March the 8th, the militia entered the two makeshift prisons and asked the villagers if they were prepared to die. The Indians said they had commended their spirits to God and were confident he would receive them. In each killing house, the soldiers seated their prisoners on a block, one at a time, using a cooper's mallet, an axe-like tool, They cleaved their skulls, then scalped them. The handful of soldiers who refused to take part in the murders were seen wringing their hands and calling out to God to witness that they had opposed this vicious act. Several of the soldiers wandered away from the scene of the slaughter. One soldier who had voted for mercy was 22-year-old Obadiah Holmes, Jr. Later, he would write, Nathan Rollins and his brother, who had a father and an uncle killed, took the lead in murdering the Indians. Nathan Rollins had tomahawked 19 of the poor Moravians, and after it was over, he sat down and cried and said it was no satisfaction at all for the loss of his father and uncle. While waiting to be executed, the Indians continued to sing hymns and pray, all the while refusing to resist. One witness said a soldier taunted an Indian by pretending to offer him his hatchet, saying, Go ahead, strike me dead. When the Indian answered, I will strike no one dead, the soldier swung at the man and chopped his arm off. The man continued to sing his hymn until the soldier split his head open with another swing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Blessedly, the Delaware at the village of Schoenbrunn 
escaped the fate of the villagers from Janaid and Hutton and Salem. It was a stroke of sheer luck. Before the massacre had begun, the Moravian missionaries up in Sandusky had sent word to Schoenbrunn to let everyone know that the Indians in Captive Town were being moved to Fort Detroit. That messenger arrived on March the 6th. Two Delaware from Schoenbrunn were immediately dispatched to inform their brethren in Janaden Hutton of the new plan, but they came across that body of Joseph Shabash Jr. just hours after he'd been killed by the soldiers. They also saw enough hoof prints to know that the others in Janaden Hutton had probably suffered the same fate. They quickly buried Joseph, returned to Schoenbrunn, and cleared out. When the Pennsylvania soldiers arrived at Schoenbrunn the day after the massacre, they found the village empty and burned it to the ground. In all, the militia murdered and scalped 28 men, 29 women, and 39 children. They left the dead where they lay, set the village on fire, and marched off with 80 pack horses they had tricked the Indians into loading with their loot. There were at least two survivors. A boy named Thomas had been struck and scalped, but he was still alive. He lay still among the dead bodies, then crept out after dark. He made it to the Sandusky Trail, where he found the villagers from Schoenbrunn as they were fleeing back north. And in the cabin, holding the women and the children, a widow named Judith managed to pry up a floorboard and deposited two boys into the small root cellar below. They stayed there while the massacre took place. Once the building was set on fire, one of the boys was able to escape. The other boy was too big to get through the window, and he burned to death. It is possible, actually likely, there was a third survivor. Years after it was over, the family of Obadiah Holmes Jr., that 22-year-old soldier who voted against the massacre, claimed that Obadiah had rescued a seven-year-old boy and raised him. Early historians didn't know if that was true, but in 1999, more than 200 years later, an old diary from a Moravian mission in Canada was translated for the first time, and it seemed to support that claim. There was an entry on August the 31st, 1801, that said, An Indian came to visit today, who had been captured by whites as a child and raised by them. He has wandered around for some time now looking for his people, and thus came to our town. It turned out he is Benjamin, the son of Daniel and Joanne, who we thought had been killed on the Muskingum. A white man hid him in the bush and saved his life. The Muskingum, by the way, was the old name for the Tuscaroras River. The bodies at Janaid and Hutton remained where they lay for years, until Zeisberger's assistant, John Heckwelder, returned and had the bones placed in a mound on the south of the village. Zeisberger declared the slain believers as Christian martyrs. 
The surviving Delaware Christians eventually moved from Sandusky to present-day London, Ontario, in Canada. In 1785, a regretful U.S. Congress granted them three town sites, and David Zeisberger led many of them back to Ohio and established the Goshen Mission near Schönbrunn. Zeisberger lived there till his death, but when he was gone, the Indians went back to Ontario or moved on to another mission in Kansas. The soldiers who participated in the slaughter that day were too cowardly to ever admit it. They denied accusations repeatedly. Their descendants denied it. And it became impossible to reconstruct an accurate muster roll of who was there. No criminal charges were ever filed. Immediately after learning about the massacre, General George Washington told his troops it was best they avoid being captured alive. He knew the payback that probably awaited them. And Benjamin Franklin wrote in a letter to a friend, The abominable murders committed by some of the frontier people on the poor Moravian Indians has given me infinite pain and vexation. I cannot comprehend why cruel men should have been permitted thus to destroy their fellow creatures. David Williamson, the officer who had led the Janaden Hutton Massacre, lived until 1814. He died in poverty. Now, if you're up for a road trip, there is much to see and do in the area of this history. In Janaden Hutton, there's a 37-foot monument that was erected in 1872, just 90 years after the massacre. The monument's dedication was attended by several Moravian Indians from Canada, one of whom was the great-grandson of Joseph Shabash. He was the first victim that dark day. The monument is next to a reconstructed mission house in what was the center of the original village. You can visit the Janaden Hutton Museum and Park at 182 Cherry Street. I wish I'd known this so we could have done this episode earlier, but just this past March the 8th, the site held a day of remembrance and invited Native American tribes for a program and a ceremonial fire. But they do have other events throughout the year. Just search for Janaden Hutton Museum on Facebook for details. Now, not far from Janaden Hutton, you can find the reconstructed village of Schoenbrunn. It's operated by the Ohio Historical Society. You'll find the village restored to appear as it did 200 years ago. The original cemetery is there, and visitors can receive an orientation on the whole story in the Visitor Center and Museum. You can find that at 1984 East High Avenue in New Philadelphia. Also, in warm weather months, you can see an outdoor amphitheater production called Trumpet in the Land. It depicts the Janaden Hutton Massacre and the events leading up to it. They've been doing that performance for more than 50 years. You can learn more about it at trumpetintheland.com. I went once as a child, and again just a few years ago. I recommend it just to pick a nice weather day. It is an open-air theater. 
That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. We are also a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts, the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Also, check out our new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Ohio Mysteries. And now, a little more about our featured musical artist. CU Starside is a female-fronted alternative metal band from Cincinnati, Ohio, featuring Melissa Rose, Tommy Dudley, and Eric Drake. This trio recently released its first album, Digital Distractions, available on all streaming services. Tonight, we're showcasing their song, Deaf to Me. Tommy said the song was inspired by the story of the video game, Death Stranding, but also the experience of being through the pandemic. He told me, I think a lot about how the digital world and the real world collide, especially in quarantine, where we were still all connected through digital platforms, but also how that will never be the same as physically being next to someone. A lot of people suffered the loneliness of that, even though being connected to millions digitally. Well, I think that's something we can all relate to. By the way, if you are a musical artist in or from Ohio, we'd love to promote your work to our listeners. Just drop us a line at feedback at ohiomysteries.com and we'll make it happen. Let's have another listen to Death to Me by CU Starside. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.